0: Well, today we are starting a new series in uh, the Ten Commandments. We're beginning with the first commandment today, and uh, John's going to be looking at that with us. We're uh, going to read, therefore, from uh, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and uh, page 77 if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. We'll just read through all of the Ten Commandments um, this morning together. So, Exodus chapter 20 from verse 1, uh, page 77, if you've got a pew Bible, we know that this is God's Word as we turn to these words. Exodus chapter 20 from verse 1, and God spoke all these words, "'I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery.'" you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to A 1,000 generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, "'Nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. "'For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, "'but he rested on the seventh day. "'Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. "'Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. "'You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery.' You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, "'Speak to us yourself and we will listen.'" But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. John.
1: Well, let's turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 this morning as we start this series in the Ten Commandments. And uh, we are looking forward to this series, and uh, we're delighted to be able to look at this uh, again here this morning. So as we start the Ten Commandments, our title for it is Designed for Life. We're trying to think, what is it that's going on behind the scenes within the Ten Commandments? As a child, uh, I remember uh, being obsessed with the iron in our house. Why? Because the iron did really cool things, doesn't it? It, it spits out water, and uh, some of the modern ones, they now have steam, and it sits up on this raised throne in this beautiful shaped board, and you think this thing's amazing. Not so much now, but definitely as a child I thought it was cool. Uh, and uh, it, obviously it heats up to incredible temperatures, and my mom always warned me, John, don't touch the iron. I thought, Mum, you are the biggest spoil sport in the world. Why am I not allowed to touch the iron as a little four- or five-year-old boy? This is cool. It's like like a hot water pistol. It's amazing. And uh, one day, Mum put the iron on, and I knew I wasn't meant to touch the iron, but Mum maybe went somewhere else in the house to get some clothes, and I reached up onto that beautiful, weird-shaped throne that the iron sits on, boom, hands straight onto the iron. And instantly, I knew that I'd done wrong. And so I ran into the back room, started to cry. Mum asked me, John, what did you do? Said, Mum, I got my hand caught in the door. <laughs> now, why did Mum tell me not to touch the iron? She told me not to touch the iron because she knew that I would get hurt. It would be for my benefit to avoid the iron, at least for a few years, until I was old enough to operate it properly. And whenever it comes to looking at the Ten Commandments, how do we think about it? We often think, why is the Lord telling us not to do these things that we would really love to do? Is He just here to try and spoil our fun? Is He here to stop us doing really, really good and exciting and fun things? Well, no, He's not. He's not doing it because of that. He's telling us what the design for our lives, the best design for our lives is. He's telling us that we should do or not do things, so that we can enjoy His perfect way for our lives, so that we can be kept from harm, so that we can flourish and thrive. Here's how Jen Wilkin. Jen Wilkin has a, a wonderful book on the Ten Commandments. It might be something that you want to pick up over the next couple of weeks and and read it through as we go through this series. Jen says this. She says that whenever we are thinking about the Ten Commandments, she says. They are seen by many as obsolete utterances of a thunderous, grumpy God to a disobedient people, neither of whom seem very relatable or likable. The Ten Commandments is not how we see them. It's just a grumpy God telling us things that we cannot do, and that is not what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are not God's way to ruin our son that is to totally misunderstand them. They're not rules that are here to spoil us or, or to, to keep us from things that we would like to do, but therefore are flourishing. The Ten Commandments are a beautiful thing, and they're here for us as human beings to flourish. We'll re- refer to this throughout the series, but here's three ways to think of the Ten Commandments. And boys and girls, you're taking notes that might be really helpful to think about this. They're First of all, a fence. The Ten Commandments are a fence. What do I mean by that? They're a, they give us a boundary to keep us safe. If we stay within the Ten Commandments, then we will be safe. We'll keep ourselves from destruction and brokenness. They're a fence. They're also a map. They're given to us uh, so we can see the way in which we should live, the way that we should walk in our lives. A fence, a map, but the Ten Commandments are also a mirror, a mirror to show us our sin. As we hold up the commandments, we can see how far short we fall. They're given to us to grow in holiness. So, a fence, a map, and a mirror. And the commandments are the designer's manual for how to construct a good and a godly life. So, let's dig deeper into these today. This is a, a, an introduction to our Ten Commandments, so we're going to focus on two particular general points, and then we'll dig in at our final point to the actual commandment, the first commandment itself. And so the first point for us today is this. We've got to see the nature of the lawgiver. We've got to see the nature of the lawgiver. Boys and girls, if you're taking notes for this first one, you've got to see that the Ten Commandments show us what God is like. The Ten Commandments show us what God is like. How can we think about this? Well. Our parents, they often tell us whenever we're growing up to clean our rooms, and that seems like the worst task in the world. Why is it that our mums and dads or granny and granddad always tell us to clean our room? Well, they tell us, that, that instruction tells us something about that person that tells us to do that thing. So why do parents tell us to clean our rooms? Parents tell us to clean our rooms because they value cleanliness. They want us to show respect for our own living environment. They teach us to maintain a room before we maintain a house. They want us to be clean so that we don't get sick. They want us to live well and safe. It's not safe if we have bundles and bundles and bundles of clothes all over the room, and we maybe need to leave the room in a quick, uh, uh, with quick timing if there's a fire or something in the house. It's, it's not safe. They want us to live well, and that's why they tell us to clean our rooms. It tells us that they have a heart for us. They they want us to do well. They're trying to help us in life. And so, the Ten Commandments, what do they do firstly? They introduce us to our God. So, look at Exodus 20. Look at how it begins. It comes in the wake of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? That's really important for us to see at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we think that they just come isolated, but actually they begin after the the exodus, had been taken out of Egypt, and here the Lord speaks, and He speaks with authority. He's our Creator God. I am the Lord your God. What's He telling us in that moment? He's telling us, "I have made you. I know you." I know what's best for you. I know how you should live. I know every piece and every part of you. I've put you together. I know you better than you know yourself. And so, it's a father speaking to his children, and he's saying, listen to me. This is how you will flourish. I'm going to give you words that are for your good. I've brought you out. 1st 2, I've brought you out of the land of Egypt What has the Lord done? He has redeemed these people. He has bought them back. He's he's reclaimed them. He's taken them under his possession. Verse 2 He's brought them out of the the house or out of the land of slavery. He's set his children free, taken them out of captivity. And so, verse 2 what is it? It's the gospel. It's the gospel foreshadowed in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It looks forward to the ultimate Exodus. It looks forward to Jesus coming, taking his captive people out of the slavery of sin and taking them to himself. This is the beginning, as one person said, it is the beginning of the the best love story. It's a love letter that is being written here in Exodus chapter 20 to God's people from the hand of God. Now, that starts to to change the way that we see the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? So we see the nature of the lawgiver. This isn't a harsh person who's who's dictating what we should do and what we shouldn't do. He's given us these in love. It's It's a picture of grace. It's a moment of love. And therefore, it's not a moment of restriction. The Ten Commandments are not there to restrict us. They're not there to spoil our fun, but they're there for our good. It's as if the the Lord takes us to Himself, and uh, He takes us out, if you imagine, into this huge ranch, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. And He says, look, this is my world. This is my ranch. I want you to go and to enjoy it. But here are some, some helpful guidelines that will keep you well along the way here are some things that will keep you from harm and from brokenness. Here's how you should live. The Lord's speaking to us, speaking to His people, speaking in love, wanting them to flourish. And so, let's not think, as we work through this series, that the Ten Commandments are, are like ten strict teachers that stand with ten canes to beat us in the line is not what they are. The Ten Commandments are ten ways in which humanity will flourish because this is how God has created us to live. God showing us what He is like and what is best for us. A beautiful love letter from the one who loves us best. The nature of the law. Secondly, then, we need to see the necessity of the law. Uh, and boys and girls, again, if you're taking a heading down, this is uh, how we can live to please God, how we can live to please God, the necessity of the law. As humans, we love the, the next top ten or next top five tips for how to live the best life. Uh, Jordan Peterson, who is a, a Canadian psychologist and a professor, he released a book called The Twelve Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, And Jordan Peterson's book has sold over 6 million copies. We love this. We love the top 10 rules for life or or tips for how to be a better person. Here's some of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. There you go. Make friends with people who want the best for you. And the third one, assume the person you are listening to might know something that you don't. Now you only have nine more to go. If you want to buy his book, I'll not give the rest away. But six million copies for for advice like stand up straight and put your shoulders back. And people crave it. They, They love it. Why do we love it? We want to know how to live. We know that the way that we naturally live does not lead to our flourishing. We know that the way that we naturally live brings us into brokenness and into war and into distress, into hostility one with the other. And so, we're, we're longing, we're, we're hungry for advice, hungry for the best way to live. That's why we need this. If, if you bought a piece of flat, flat pack furniture uh, recently, you'll know that you need the instructions, don't you? Because you maybe buy a, a book cabinet, and if you, if you push the instructions away from yourself, you think, Forget about the book cabinet. We're going to build a coffee table because that's about all that I can muster here. We're going to cut bits and we're going to get extra screws and extra bolts. We, we throw the manual out and we don't have a clue where we're going or what we're doing. There's a necessity to the law. But here's the problem. We live in an age that is anti-law. It's what sometimes is referred to as anti-nomian, anti-law, We don't like the law. Our society uh, over recent years has taken on to this idea of what what is called critical theory, and critical theory pretty much says that any institution, any rule of life needs to be done away with. Anything that's superior, that has any sort of authority needs to be done away with, and we are not immune from this thinking within the church been those, there have been those who have thought that the law of God here in Exodus chapter 20 is redundant, that we don't need it, that Jesus made it redundant, that it's no longer applicable to the Christian's life. And let's say today that the opposite is true. This law that was given by God taps into His very nature, and our God does not change our first point the nature of the lawgiver He does not change, and therefore, why would His law change? The things that please Him, that make Him happy, why would that change in the New Testament? And in fact, whenever we look at Jesus, what does He do? He takes the very words of the Ten Commandments, and He preaches one of the most, or the most famous sermon ever preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And what does He do? And he's taking the Ten Commandments, and He's explaining them. He's expounding those, showing us how they're relevant, Now, can we uphold the Ten Commandments perfectly? No, we can't. Jesus does. He upholds them perfectly. And so, this side of the cross, we live not to save ourselves by the law, but we live by the law because we have been saved by Christ. That distinction is so important for us. This side of the cross, we live not to save ourselves by the law, but we live by the law because we have been saved by Christ. And so, we completely want to refute those who say that Jesus comes, and He scraps the law of Exodus. We want to refute that. The ceremonial law and the judicial law from the Old Testament, they have passed, but the moral law, this law, has not. And so Jesus comes and He explains it. If you think about the, the epistles within the New Testament, what are they laden with? They're laden with explanations of the law. How we grow in Christ-likeness, how we become holy, how we are sanctified is all centered on the law. All of it has its roots in the law in Exodus 20. So let's not think that the commandments are too restrictive. Let's think that the commandments are absolute nectar for us in how we live an obedient life to our God. And as we live this way, as we live in accordance with the Ten Commandments, our Lord is pleased. Think of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Why do we meditate on the law of the Lord? Because it shows us who he is and how good he is. Meditates on his law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. See the importance, the centrality of the law in the Christian life? And so our Father knows that those who stray beyond His design will what will inevitably fall into pain and destruction and brokenness. But this is the design for life, and it is good, and we should live by it. Now it's important to say that that the law is not a ladder. The law is not a way to get uh, salvation. We can't think today that if we just just uphold the law perfectly, that we will be saved. That is impossible. It was given to a redeemed people so that we could live a holy life for the glory of God. You want to live for God's glory? You want to magnify the Lord? You want to exalt the Lord? Then get back into the Ten Commandments. Understand them. See the good in them. Live under God's design and live in this world in the way that He has told us. The nature of the law and the necessity of the law, now we want to actually make our way into the, the first commandment itself. And it's simply this. What is the first commandment trying to show us? It's trying to show us that we need to worship the one true and living God and Him alone. We need to worship the one true and living God and Him alone kids, this morning, again, if you're taking notes, a way to think about that is that they show us God's best way to live. The Ten Commandments show us God's best way to live. We need to worship the triune and living God. Here's maybe a helpful illustration that I came across. Uh, Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, talks about the law in this way. He talks about, uh, to imagine the law like uh, the tracks of a railway line and a steam train, He says that the train needs steam and the train needs the railway lines upon which to run. It needs both. It needs steam and it needs the tracks. The steam powers the train and the tracks ensure it can move. And so he says the Christian has what? The power of the Spirit. That's the steam, as it were, in the engine to keep us going. Well, what are the tracks? The tracks are the law of God. The Holy Spirit pushing us forward, and the tracks are the law of God, His design for life. And so, verse 3, what's the very first uh, section of this track? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that's maybe strange for us. Is God saying that there are other gods, other deities? Absolutely not categorically he's saying that there's only one God. He is the one true and living God. That's why he defines himself in verse 2, I am, I am the Lord your God. There are no other gods. So, what is he saying? If he's not talking about other deities and some sort of pantheon, what, what's, what's he talking about? Well, Deuteronomy 6 and verses 4 to 5 help us with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What is the first commandment all about? The first commandment is all about worship. You shall have no other gods before me. It's about worship. Worship God and worship Him alone. So let's slow here for just a moment. What's happening in Exodus 20, in the grand scheme of redemptive history in the Bible? Well well, God's people had been taken into captivity, and then what does God do? He comes and He speaks to His people and He draws them out of Egypt, and He has a new people for Himself, the people of Israel. And it's, it's Him starting again, isn't it, redeeming a people for Himself? to bring them into relationship with Himself. He's going to give them the the tabernacle, a place that they can worship with Him. He's going to dwell with them. And the tabernacle is going to be a reflection of what? It's going to be a reflection of Eden. So, in in some sense, we can have this, this echo of Eden as we come into Exodus 20. And whenever we come to the first commandment, it's Eden being restored, isn't it? Where did Adam go wrong in the garden? He started to worship himself. The Lord had told him to remain in relationship with him and him alone, and yet he goes against the Lord. And so, what we see in in verse 3 of Exodus 20 is really, it's really the Lord redoing Eden. He's calling out the sin of Eden. He's calling out idolatry. Because what is the highest form of idolatry, of idol worship? It is the worship of self. Here's what Matthew Roberts says about Adam in the garden. He says, when Adam decided he would not serve God, he tried to be God. Never Adam said, I am not going to serve God. I'm going to try and be God. And Roberts says he didn't stop worshiping Instead, he starts to worship himself. In that moment in the garden, worship changes from being for and only to the one true and living God, and Adam becomes inward, and he worships himself. He, he promotes himself. He elevates himself. And Maybe this morning as we think about worship, how could we think about it in a different light? Worship is service. That's what happens in worship. It's service. Worship is the devoting of our hearts in the service of the thing that we worship. So imagine it with a couple that love one another. They're devoted to each other. They're devoted to their other half. And what happens is that they love and they serve them, don't they? Well, what do you need, dear? Cup of tea. Breakfast and bed. Toast buttered the crust's the crust cut off. I'm going to serve you. I, I love you, and therefore I'm going to serve you. In a sense, we're going to worship the one that we love. And what we know from the garden is that we've been made to be worshipers, all of us. We are made to be servants. It's how God has made us. And so Adam, Adam was worshiping he was worshiping in the garden, he was serving his God, and God was exalted in him as he served him. Everything that gave Adam joy and glory was perfect service and perfect worship of God, and then he refuses to serve the Lord. Instead, he serves himself, the highest form of idolatry. And for us here today to reject the Son of God to worship ourselves is to go against us, to fly in the face of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. It'll be the highest form of idolatry. And this is where our society is. Who do we worship? We worship ourselves. We turn inward on ourselves. We elevate ourselves. We escalate ourselves. I am king. I am queen. I will do what I want to do, how I want to do it. Worship of the Lord with no time or space for that. Just like we thought about with our boys and girls and selfish swain. And so, what we've done is we've escalated and elevated our own identities to be deities. Our own identities are now godlike. And that's why we can see all of the problems, all of the bitterness that now flows as people think about their identities in our culture. And as they escalate their identities, and as they tie things to their identities, things that were never designed to be tied, whenever then their identity is attacked, it becomes nuclear, doesn't it? Because they have have turned themselves into deities. We have turned ourselves into deities, our own gods. Now, Israel, Israel, they have emerged from a society laden with false gods. What does the Lord do in His grace? He speaks to them, and it's as if He takes His almighty arm, and all the little false gods that sit on the table for Israel, He takes His arm and He swoops them all off. Eden restored, you shall worship Me and Me alone. Besides Me there is no other. And so, the question for us this morning is, who will we serve? Who will we worship? Will we serve ourselves, or will we serve the Lord? Will we worship ourselves, or will we worship the Lord? Verse 3, you, my children, should have no other gods. God knows us. He knows our temptations. He knows what we're likely to make into God's. And he says, Worship me and me alone. And here's the lie the lie that Satan worships, or the lie that Satan whispers to us is this the lie that that we need to be free from the commandments. If we can just set them aside, then we'll truly live. And we believe the lie, and we set aside the worship of God. And in that moment, what we're saying is that God isn't enough. Lord, you're not enough for me. The worship of you is not good enough. To serve you alone is not good enough. I'm going to do my own thing. We set him aside and we look for more. We will never be satisfied in the worship of anything or anyone else outside of God. And so Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 6. And our time's gone, but Matthew chapter 6 And in Matthew chapter 6, if you have an opportunity to read it this afternoon, what is the Lord trying to, to teach us in that section? He's trying to show us what true worship is like, what heart worship is like. And He says this in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a call this morning to see the Lord as our treasure in the first commandment and to worship Him alone. And then in Matthew 6 and verse 24, he challenges us and he says, No one can serve two masters. For for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. We can't serve two masters. It's the worship of the Lord alone. That's what he calls us to. And the question is will we worship him this morning? Will we worship him and him alone? Do you see God's way for your life, the design for his life, or for your life, is good and is perfect? Do you see that it's the design that you have to live by? It's the design given for your flourishing? This is why it starts here. This is why the Lord starts in verse 3. You shall have no other gods, because if we miss this one, then all the rest are redundant. We've got to begin with the worship of Jesus. Worship of self will end in death. But worship of the, the one true God, worship of Jesus Christ will end with what? Eternal life. And so the invitation from John 10, 10 is this. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life And have it abundantly. This is true life. The worship of Jesus. The worship of our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Him alone. Will you take His invitation? Will you take His invitation to come and to worship? Will you come to Him right now? And fall at His feet. And take Him as your God.